I was worried actually when I went to the States that it would sort of destroy whatever banter we had, that it yeah. would revert me to a sort of feral state of my being. All right. But it's not. I mean, you and I, we both showed up today wearing shirts saying, I'm with stupid. That's how in sync we are. Yeah. It's a bit of a, um, no, a bad infinity, Hegel <laughs> calls it. We just won a three-legged race together, which was really weird because of the height differential, but... Yeah. We have been riding around town on a tandem bike. Some people are pedaling more than others, let's put it that way. <laughs> and we just actually sang a tight two-part harmony. Yeah. What were we singing? Um, it was, it was Gangster's <laughs> Paradise. So that doesn't even need harmonizing, does it? Because it's a rapper song. <laughs> Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Aluminium bin over here is Daniel. Do you have aluminum trash cans in America? Yeah. And if so, that's you, Abby. <laughs> that's just straight translation, that is, isn't it? That's not the fun of, like, Pooh Bell. Pooh Bell? That's maybe <laughs> in Vermont, in the kind of French area that you're from, they go, what, what y'all put in that there, Pooh Bell? Boy, you better not put that. <laughs> my prize. <laughs> I'm trying to think now. What, what do they have? You be, boy, you better not be putting my maple syrup tap. Tap and tap in the pool bail, boy. That's Abby. It's called a sap tap. Again, I cannot believe how many times I've had to tell you this. I am not from Louisiana. I know that. They're all the same, though, aren't they? You can say that about Franco-Americans, because they're obviously <laughs> very readily reviled. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe, maybe America has changed your sense of humour. That's not funny. <laughs> maybe I'm just not funny. My absence has made you meaner. <laughs> oh, this is tremendous. We are off to such a good start. Good to see you, friend. <laughs> All right, do you want to read some letters? I bloody well do. Hello, tis I again. Formerly Morgan, now more. I queer reading to myself. <gasps> so please, pop the cork if you will. Is that... Can other people request a cork pop? Yes, they can. Okay. If they queer reading Stop. themselves, they can. Congratulations, more. We are delighted. And I like to think that I single-handedly did this. All right. Wow. I think it needs a double tick, so I'll tick the cork pop as well. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> but you needed to sign off on yeah. this. <laughs> as you know, I simply adore your podcast. Aww. It'll be mentioned to my grandkids, etc., etc. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to recommend a work... You probably have a little pile going on. We uh, do. We really do. Although, if you do any Kafka, I may, I may, it's not a guarantee, weep with joy. Well, more. you know, you've presumably clicked on the title of this episode, so let the tears <laughs> commence. Really, really let out some dark stuff. This is your chance now. I hope you get to do the ugly cry with this episode. Yeah, what's that? <sighs> so... 
Uh, <laughs> anyway, instead, I will thank you for keeping me motivated to get into my university's English and Modern Languages course. I had an interview yesterday, and they told me I would be able to switch subjects almost immediately. This is exciting. This is a lot of big news. You got this episode, you're switching your courses, your queer readings. As a fan of Kafka, maybe you're just surprised by how... Uh, speedily the uh, the whole admin thing went how <laughs> <laughs> smoothly it all was great well thank you more final letter from Lindsay so this is what Lindsay says I just voted for you in the British podcast awards oh bless you Lindsay we did not get shortlisted for that I know that this you wrote this months ago but I think you were the only one well it was in the listeners choice category so it's gonna say that apostrophe is in the wrong place because Lindsay, you're the only listener. So. <laughs> well, we appreciate it in any case, but yeah, no, ain't no way we're getting through that. I can't think of a funnier, more thought-provoking, interesting, educational, and entertaining nominee. Oh. And entertaining, it's all of it. I've listened to almost all episodes, couldn't do Lolita. That's uh, a shame, because that's one of our funniest ones, I think. Yeah. Anyway, I am now bereft at having to wait two weeks for new content. Please keep doing the podcast. Oh. Oh. So, afterthought. Please do. This This is no afterthought. What is your woman voice you're doing? That's not a woman's voice. That's your normal man's well, voice? I'm a bit of acting. Oh. And uh, please do an episode on Moby Dick. As I'm sure I heard you say you love it, and I just don't get it. Yeah, okay, so... I went into it thinking I was going to hate it because it's famously and it's supposed to be really boring. First of all, it is weirder than you could possibly imagine. It is so gay, it loops back around to being straight. And like, I don't want to diagnose anyone, but when you read it, you just think, Melville is, he's hes mad, yeah. isn't he? It's oh, like, yeah. it's no, so yeah. clearly the rantings of a madman, but he is such a good writer, he harnesses his madness. I'd say often they're quite sensitive and like, sort of insightful oh yes no absolutely <laughs> yeah. but that's what i'm saying is that he makes it work for his writing but it's uh, just like there's there's a chapter on like rope and yeah, tying knots yeah. and when it finished i was like you know what i really want to know more about those knots i want to teach me more like every chapter on the most boring subject he he said it in the most compelling way possible yeah it's about the whole picturing a whole world of the world yes but in a kind of highly poetic and philosophical way Okay, and so this is just a reminder that we have some English courses here at Aston University. If you ever thought, hey, I'd really like these two doofuses to teach me, we have an undergrad program here, we have a master's program, and I do take on the occasional PhD student, so please write in for more information. And then here's a little note about our Patreon. So for those of you who don't know, we've recently got a Patreon. We currently upload one video per month. But we'd actually like to hear from you guys about what you would want to see. Would you guys be interested in, say, more outtakes and bloopers from the show? Because we have a ton of them. Do you want the occasional extra measuring worth video as and when Daniel thinks of it? Would you like some book reviews or film reviews or maybe a book club where a bunch of us from around the globe could all you know, jump on Skype and talk about a novel for an hour or something? Write into us and tell us how we can best entertain you while also paying our bills. Patreon. It's like a Vegas residency for disillusioned millennials. Ooh. Yeah, well, thanks for those who have signed up. And thanks even more for everyone who hasn't. What? Just to tempt them into doing it. What, all, the, all the Daniel haters out there going, I'll show you. 
I'll, I'll give you all my money. Exactly. Yeah, it's got Ooh, reverse psychology. I like, your, I like your little sassy shoulder shake when you did that. Yeah. For the listeners. <laughs> all right, Daniel. What is our text today? So you're asking to know today's text. Yes. Can I first ask if you have clearance from the uh, relevant authorities to know today's text? I believe so, yes. Can you prove that? I mean, it's my show. Right. So well, I'm the authority here. Okay, but do you have re- relevant clearance to inquire from me what today's text is? I think more importantly, I'm not authorized to tell you if I have the clearance to tell you if you have clearance to ask me. That's the problem. Oh god, it sounds like there are forms involved. Yeah. You can inquire about the text if it's for any non-literary reasons. So, for example, regarding the weight, dimensions, or quality of the pages, <laughs> um, the location of printing or the acquisition of the text in question, or to identify any of the verminous mites that may or not may not inhabit the substance of the text. You know, I hadn't really had mites on my radar for this show. We should do, because they're in all the books. So no, I, I w- I'd like to talk about the content, if that's okay. Well, I don't think that's a real goer. Uh, anyway, it's a whole Kafkaesque nightmare. Bloody hell. Forms. There's no forms in this book. We're doing The Trial by Franz Kafka, 1925. So it should go without saying, we're about to spoil this text for you. In terms of the content, it's a very paranoid text. There's a lot of surveillance, bureaucracy, futility. There's whipping, stabbing, some very odd sex stuff. There's some anti-disability stuff and a lot of humiliation, sort of ritualized humiliation. But they quite like it, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about you, but like reading this made me feel very, very anxious. So it like, it lit up the part of my brain that would be triggered if I were, say, being hunted for sport. Puts you in a bad mood, I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A real irritating... So, I think that's a triumph, though, on Kafka's part. I mean, uh, yes, absolutely. I'm just saying, sorry if we, you know, pay it forward to you guys. Yeah. Well, if I, I've had to go through this, you should. <laughs> <laughs> All right, do some background. Right, so Franz Kafka. He's a German-speaking Czech Jew. Stop. Are you going to do a German accent during all of this? Because I... Well, I thought not. Good, because, I mean, I would kill to hear you Cloris Leachman your way through this whole thing, but that has, like, a 30-second shelf life. I don't know the Prague Jew accent, so I suppose that would complicate things. I would just kind of do sort of SS officer, which kind of sends out the wrong <laughs> tone. <laughs> uh, he was born in Prague in 1883. Kafka was a trained lawyer. He worked for an insurance company for all of his adulthood and just wrote on the side. Unsurprisingly, perhaps the law figures very strongly in his work. So I've actually been to the Kafka Museum in Prague. Outside, they have these statues of these two men pissing into a pool that's shaped like the Czech Republic. And I feel like that's just sort of a taste of what's to come. That's kind of um, the sort of scatology of Yaroslav Hajek, the other great Czech writer. Okay. So which author do you prefer? Because we know you have a self-defecating sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Uh, um, Kafka's definitely better, but Hajek is funny. Okay. Kafka only published a handful of works in his lifetime, including the famous 1915 novella, The Metamorphosis. He died of tuberculosis in 1924 and left instructions in his will to his friend Max Brod for him to to burn all of his unpublished and unfinished works, including the three incomplete novels, of which the trial was the first, uh, that he wrote in the kind of like 1915 period and onward. Brod 
just ignored this request and published them anyway. So I think that's important to bear in mind because the trial, as we have it today, was assembled and edited by Broad. So it's not necessarily what Kafka had in mind. Although I can't even imagine the way it's written, it almost feels like it could never have been finished. <laughs> Kafka was a modernist. His works deal with sort of typically modern themes like alienation, paranoia, the absurd in a kind of urban and legal bureaucratic context. But stylistically too, you can see that he has this preoccupation with like very experimental forms of writing that encourage ambiguity or, or fragmentary or, or illogical structures. Also, I suppose a bit like Virginia Woolf in Orlando, which we covered a few episodes back, he's kind of a forerunner of magic realism, isn't he? I think you could say that about. He's definitely dipping his toe yeah. into what would become magical realism yeah. for sure. Because other modernists like Joyce and stuff aren't really like that, mm -hmm. are they? You know, he's going in a different direction. Critics say that there's a lot of themes from like Jewish mysticism in his writing, like uh, kind of cabalistic and, and motifs and like legends and stuff. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of this is really surreal. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to follow. So if you're a reader who likes a really clear plot or a really clear message, I'm here to tell you that Kafka likes to hide this under a fucking shell game. Oh, where's the plot? Follow the lady. Where is it? Where is it? Here? Oh, no, you know, it's. Made it quite hard to summarize. What <laughs> did you that. find? Yeah, yeah. I think it's important to say, though, and going forward, I think you should bear this in mind when we're reading the book, that Kafka was such a weird guy. Like, he was super fastidious. He had this obsessive hatred of his dad, who, okay, was probably a bit overbearing, but Kafka takes it to this whole crazy level. He was a massive hypochondriac, and, like, he was really vain as well, I read. Uh, he, like, was obsessed with tanning booths. He always had, like, a really dark suntan. He was, what? Like, he was such a weird guy. Well, I did, I did feel a bit like he was, you know, a heartbeat away from camping out on a clock tower with a rifle. I don't know if it, incel is quite the right word, because it's not, but they're, they're, like, disturbed young man. But, but also camping out in a slightly different way. Like, there's all that whole... Aren't his last words when he was in the TB sanatorium? He, like, wrote it. He couldn't even talk. He just wrote, please move those flowers as the smell is noxiously overpowered. <laughs> something like that. So yeah. there's a kind of strange, like, effeminacy as well. Like uh, if Oscar Wilde were a school shooter. Yes, exactly. That's what Kafka's like. And, yeah, he had funny relationships with women, in fact. So that's kind of sexual anxiety is there as well. So, yeah. Kafka wrote this really long letter to his dad. I don't know if you know about this. I don't. He, think he like, hated his dad. And he wrote a 20-page letter or something to him telling him just how much he hated him. It's full of things that seem very, like, sort of, like, strange or, like, innocent, really. Like, this he's like, I remember when we would be at the public baths at the swimming pool. You would be teaching me to swim, and you would just be there, much taller than me, bigger than me, gloating at your size. You weren't saying anything, but I just knew it. And the other one, like, we would be at the... In the, in the beer gardens and you would buy me a pint as if to humiliate me I couldn't buy my own pint and you know it's like really <laughs> petty mental stuff so he's a really weird guy I feel like this is what it's like living inside your head yeah it is it is a lot like that yeah <laughs> as you say that's another piece of the puzzle <laughs> Someone must have been telling lies about Joseph K, for without having done anything wrong, he was arrested one fine morning. So, Joseph K lives in a respectable boarding house. He's lying in bed, expecting his breakfast, you know, like Wallace and Gromit, he's prison at the bottom <laughs> repeatedly. Oh, where's me, where's me breakfast? So, yeah, instead of his landlady with his... What did you have for breakfast in Prague? You went there. Uh, one of those disgusting chocolate coins filled with the, um, plum stuff that those flavor combinations do not work so pretty good 
It's a Kafkaesque nightmare, that chocolate. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, instead of that, Kay is instead visited by two strange men who tell him that he's under arrest. But what for? Kay asks. We're not authorised to tell you that. The men are like just generally evasive. They seem focused more on very superficial things like Kay's dress. Quote, who could these men be? What were they talking about? What authority could they represent? Kay lived in a country with a legal constitution. There was universal peace. All the laws were in force. All the laws <laughs> were in force. Who dared seize him in his own dwelling? At the same time, however, Kay wonders if this is all just some rude joke made by his colleagues at the bank where Kay works. It is his 30th birthday, after all. So now he's worried that he'll be accused of not being able to take a joke. Quote, if this was a comedy, he would insist on playing it to the end. There's always some chuckle f*** in the office who, like, plays a mean joke and is like, Ah, oh, we got you balloons, though, instead. You banter. Know, like, yeah, f*** off, Maureen. Yeah, Kafka invented banter, is that what you're telling us? Can I, well, can I just tell you another Kafka story? Go on. I couldn't hope to contain you, frankly. Just, because people have this idea of Kafka as really, like, dark and miserable and weird and paranoid, but... Mm-hmm. I don't know if this contributes to that, but there's a story, I think it might be from Max Broad, of a salon where Kafka read the kind of first draft of the trial and he couldn't finish it because he was crying of laughter. At his own book? Yeah, he just found it so hilarious. Wait, 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 so Kafka's reading a draft of his own book? Yeah, to the salon. And he finds his own work that Oh, honey, that is disturbed. <laughs> that is, like, that's the most upsetting possible image you could have laid before me. So Joseph K., who, by the way, mostly gets called K. during this, he tries to cooperate with the men by giving them his ID papers, but they dismiss his efforts. In short, they're the lowest agents of a big legal superstructure, you know, sort of hired goons, and their role is to arrest him, and his role is to be arrested. So they do a bunch of seedy stuff, like they try to steal his breakfast and money, and there's just like a lot of low-level goon grifting. <laughs> and then finally they take him to the senior officer, who has sort of set himself up in the neighboring bedroom at Kay's landlady's house. Now, this room is normally inhabited by a young typist, Fräulein Burstner, but she's left early for work that day. Joseph K., we, we get the sense that maybe there's a little something-something going on between the two of them, because he's disgusted to see the inspector rifling through Fräulein Burstner's belongings. He's just like, ugh, get your dirty little thingies off her stuff. Mm. And also, these two goons are rat bastards. You all need to shape up. So... Kay had hoped that this inspector would be a reasonable man and who'd he'd get everything sorted, but the inspector just kind of twists everything Joseph Kay says into sounding vaguely guilty, and he also has no idea why Kay's being arrested or even who's charging him. We should just call this Redacted the Novel. Yeah, that would certainly make it quicker to read. <laughs> Then the inspector says, quote, Well, I suppose you'll be off to work then. And Joseph K. is like, um, sorry, thought I was under arrest. Quote, You are under arrest, certainly, but that need not hinder you from going about your business. You won't be hampered in carrying on in the ordinary course of your life. And Joseph K. is like, eh, maybe arrested isn't so bad after all. It's, it's very Paris Hilton with an ankle monitor in the early 2000s, not like Orange is the New Black. Don't even say that, but I like it. <laughs> He visits his landlady, Frau Grubach, to apologise to her about the arrest. But she, too, is a little bit puzzled about it. She goes, quote, You're under arrest? Certainly, but not as a thief is under arrest. (laughs) If one's arrested as a thief, that's a bad business. But as for this arrest, it gives me the feeling of something very learned. 
Forgive me if what I say is stupid, but it gives me the feeling of something abstract, which I do not understand, but which I do not need to understand either. <laughs> yeah, me too, Frau Grubach. You know, like, sometimes when you're really, really sick, and you've also taken a lot of flu meds, and you're just laying there, and you feel like the truth of the universe is unfurling before you, but you just can't deal with it, so you just roll over and go to sleep? Is that when you're hungover? That's, that's me and Frau Grubach right now. She kind of gives us the key to the book. Just like something abstract, I don't understand, you don't need to understand, but it's happening. <laughs> anyway, Kay also wants to apologize to Fräulein Bursner about the inspector trespassing in our room. And Grubach, she's a bit like, mm, there's, there's something I don't like about that girl. She's not entirely respectable. You know, she stays out late most nights and she's been talking. Talking? Talking to two, count them, two different gentlemen. So yeah, if you have eyes on, an eye on her or anything, Rethink that, Sonny. Um, Joseph K becomes furious with his landlady for such an insinuation, and later that night he hears Bursner come home and goes to speak to her about the arrest. They have this like weird stiff chat, like everyone else in the book, but there's also a sort of funny chemistry between them, and kind of apropos of nothing, K suddenly kisses her, quote, right on the throat, <laughs> before going to bed feeling smug. The sex scenes in this book, of which there are many, they are challenging to masturbate to. Oh, yes. That too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't stop Kafka from trying. So you don't think the trial should be in a brown paper bag? I, I just can't see this putting a little, like, hitch in anyone's giddy up. Okay. If you're picking up what I'm putting down. Yes. You know, days later, whatever, Joseph K. hears that they're going to progress with their inquiry into whatever he's been charged with. He's told to show up at a poor tenement building in a dreary suburb, but they neglect to tell him what flat he has to go to or what time to show up. So he sort of panics over getting lost and being late. He's just like, give me clear instructions, please. I'm a simple man. I yearn for the cha-cha slide. <laughs> So the building that Kay goes to is just this, like, warren of corridors and staircases and courtyards. It's just some real Escher BS. I thought it'd be all really, like, tidy and rationally planned. He's too embarrassed to tell the locals what he's really there for and to ask for proper directions, so he just kind of has to stumble around a bit, and this makes him very late. Finally, Kay works his way up to the fifth floor of this building, and he finds this kind of horrible, poor apartment, uh, grotty little place, with a woman washing clothes in a tub. And she's like, oh, yeah, they're expecting you to go in the next room. What? That's weird. <laughs> so he finds himself suddenly in this big meeting hall full of people. It's in front of a live studio audience. Yeah. It's like Jerry Springer, isn't it, at the trial? <laughs> he's escorted to the front of the room and is told that he's an hour and five minutes late. And it turns out that this is the first of his interrogations. Quote, whether I'm late or not, I'm here now. And he gets this burst of applause from the audience. So that's quite a famous bit. So the examining magistrate begrudgingly commences the interrogation. He's like, well, you're here, I suppose. And he starts by clarifying that Kay is a house painter. hey that's my clue that you forgot. Didn't know. Clue, clue klaxon, please. That's our magic word today. It's like Pee-wee <laughs> or something. Um, now, okay, quote, no, I'm the junior manager of a large bank, Kay says. So, Ooh. Yeah, pretty, pretty big. Yeah, is that the audience again? Yeah. <laughs> so the crowd below is divided into two halves, one of which finds this response Hilarious. Um, 
uh, and that's kind of sort of creepy that they find it hilarious. Joseph K starts laughing too, he's unsure why, but then uses it as an excuse to say his piece. So he denounces this whole trial as contemptible and he calls for compassion. Quote, what's happened to me is only a single instance and as such of no great importance, especially as I do not take it very seriously. But it's representative of a misguided policy. Yeah, your honor, permission to be sassy. Mr. K goes to Washington. (laughs) Well, he also gets in a little bit of his, like, I'm just a simple country lawyer spiel, because he says, quote, I have no wish to shine as an orator, nor could I if I wished. Very good. There's a word for that, isn't there? Is it apophysis? There's a rhetorical device that says, like, I'm bad at talking. Now let me talk at you. Someone shouts bravo, so he carries on, and he denounces specific shortcomings of the process. I really like this scene. It it shows that just because you're having a panic attack, it doesn't mean you can't also have a good time. So, suddenly, from the back of the room, there's a shriek. The washerwoman from earlier, she's, like, being attacked. Possibly in a sort of, like, sexual assault way, isn't it? It's really unclear what happens here, yeah. So, no one does anything, but Kay kind of rushes to her aid, but is obstructed by the crowd classic sort of dream bit and the crowd as he kind of gets into their midst he sees that they're all sort of these like officials they've all got sort of official badges on it they've also all got these like long gray beards and they don't like Kay's speech so this is the um the 1920s equivalent of like all the gray-faced senators we have today yeah the examining magistrate is there by the door says today you may have... I don't know what that says. <laughs> Are you from Hounslow? What yeah, is... You know, what shepherd? No, the examinees magistrate is there by the door. Today, you may not have yet become aware of the fact. Today, you have flung away with your own hand all the advantages which an interrogation invariably confers upon an accused man. So, you f- up. You are straight from Nazi central casting. Yeah, don't have the right hair colour. They can dye it, can't they? So that's that big famous scene over with. So Joseph K goes back to his normal life. He doesn't get another summons that week. And he starts to get real paranoid that, you know, he's like maybe missing something or like, what if they want to talk to me? So he's like, you know, I'll just show up at the same time in the same place next Sunday, just in case. The washerwoman is there again. And she's like, oh, no, honey, the judge isn't sitting today. Don't worry about it. They get to chatting, and they talk about her husband being an official of the court, but how she's sort of being sexually pursued by this aggressive law student. Then, she shows Joseph K. a dirty book and begins to seduce him, and all the sex stuff gets real intertwined with all the legal bureaucracy stuff, nice. and I just yeah. I just kept thinking of, what's that old onion joke? Jurisprudence fetishist gets off on a technicality. <laughs> Very good. Joseph K., he kind of thinks about it for a minute, but then he's like, eh, thanks, but no thanks. It's not because I'm unattracted to you, but honestly, you don't know anyone high up enough to help me, so the sort of, like, sex for influence trade isn't really worth my while. And she's like, hey, baby, I know the examining magistrate who I'm also having an affair with. Maybe I could make it worth your while, huh? Yeah? <laughs> so it's at this point that the young law student bursts in and he comes to talk to the washerwoman. And he starts getting real handsy and he starts yeah. kissing her neck without so much as a buy your leave. And I'm like, hey, now, that's Joseph K's move. Oh, yeah? Classic. (laughs) (laughs) Real weird. So this makes Joseph K real jealous, and he and the law student start throwing a lot of shade at each other and, you know, very come at me, bruv. 
And they even start shoving each other around a little bit. (laughs) The law student, he's like, listen, I'm not here for my own gratification. I'm not trying to get off with this lady. I'm here to carry her upstairs to the examining magistrate, who apparently has like a flat or something above the premises. So the student, this is so weird. This was such Mm -hmm. a weird bit. The student literally carries her up the stairs. He sort of slings her over his shoulder like she's a bag of cornmeal. And he, like, just starts huffing and puffing and carrying her up the stairs. She just goes completely limp and lets this happen. And she just kind of waves at Joseph K. saying, I guess this is what consent is. I'll be back in a minute. And then you can do with me as you please. Joseph, he nopes out of there. He's like, this is way too weird. She's a goer. So obviously I have to run away. Yes. He thinks, quote, that this is his first unequivocal defeat from these people, whatever that means. Hmm, these people. That's funny. I like the whole, I don't know what you think about it, but the sort of James Bond element of the trial. I kind of forgot that. What, that women just, they just drop their drawers whenever he's around? Yeah. Yeah, I found this challenging. Yeah. And it makes me want to take my Union 5. It's annoying and weird, but it's... It makes it seem more like a fantasy than a paranoia thing. You know it is, I mean? it, Not that you can't have a paranoid fantasy, but it makes it seem more like everybody's after me. But the court it, wants me. The ladies. <laughs> <laughs> the woman's husband, the court attendant, turns up looking for his wife and Joseph K. He, he tells tales, doesn't he? He says that she's been carried upstairs by the law student. The attendant tells Kay to thrash this awful law student. And he's like, it's not like you can get into any more trouble because these cases are always a foregone conclusion, so you're probably already buggered. So you might as well, you know, as Abby might say, go out punk rock. <laughs> I was wondering how you're going to handle that note. Don't know what that means. Well, just like go out in a blaze of glory. Like you're fucked already, buddy. Just like go kick that guy's ass while you're at it. Kick everyone's ass. Kick my ass. Why? You know. Yeah. Well, I think you want to go for a higher judge than that, than just some law student. Whether they are eminently kickable. <laughs> <laughs> so. Kay is reluctant, and he feels like he ought to keep in the court's good graces. The attendant takes Kay to another part of the court, and Kay starts to look out for, you know, how he can press his advantage, you know, how to find out how the machinery of the whole place works. His idea is that if he can find out how the bureaucracy functions and what its logic is, he can navigate his way through the trial. No, baby girl, this is how you end up standing in front of, like, a beautiful mind chalkboard or with a bunch of news clippings all connected by red string. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. They enter this kind of long corridor, you know, it's all very maze-like and labyrinthine and gloomy and weird. And he's soon overcome by a, quote, sudden weakness and feels like he's going to faint. So he's getting the vapours or something like that, I don't know. Some officials will come out of their offices uh, to see what's going on. They diagnose Kay's faintness as being due to the stuffy office environment. They're like, oh yeah, we're used to this environment. We actually live in our offices. But, you know, for someone like you, you know, an outsider, uh, a non-native, it's not surprising that you would start choking on the, on the, the dust. So they take Kay out to the kind of... Uh, like fire escape almost. Yeah, yeah. they take him out to the stairwell and he notices that they, by contrast, are nauseated by the outside air. Is that a slightly shit metaphor? Yes. Like, Carry on. <laughs> just for the suffocation of bureaucracy and the headiness of freedom. I think so, yeah. All that's happening. And with everything else, Kay's got woman problems. Doesn't mean he's, you know, on his period or something. <laughs> It means he's got a problem with women. <laughs> oh, Christ, I'm going to cast.
past a kitten. Oh my god! I just was, I haven't heard somebody call it woman problems since I think my grandpa exactly. twenty years <laughs> yeah, ago. Yeah. He's desperate to speak to his neighbour, Fräulein Bursner, and he can't get hold of her. He even sends some letters to her office, being like, um. Sorry, I Frenched your neck, but she never responds. Yeah, she's just like ghosted him, doesn't she? <laughs> to use the modern parlance. You're getting so good at that. Thank you. Everyone, Daniel's doing such a good job. Um, pretty lit. <laughs> I'm pretty lit about talking about lit. Yo. <laughs> Should we fist bump for over that? Is it, what do you want from me? You're looking at me expectantly. <laughs> I don't know. So he sees that another woman is moving in, into Fräulein Burstner's room. So he's kind of wondering what's going on there. He asks his landlady, and she just says that Fräulein Burstner's got a new roommate. Is that a queer reading? Can be. She's got a roommate. Yeah. Her name is Fräulein Montag. Not Sontag, not Susan Sontag. It's Fräulein Montag. I truly would not have thought that, but I'm... I'm glad you're preempting a joke that doesn't exist. Yep. Very Kafkaesque, you might say. It's also not really a joke. <laughs> also very Kafkaesque. <laughs> In a very middle school turn of events, this new woman, Fräulein Montag, she's like, um, Joseph K., Fräulein Burstner, my roommate, asked me to tell you that she doesn't want to talk to you anymore. So, K. is not to be deterred, and he tries to visit her bedroom the next day, but she's already gone to work. Also, this attempt to, you know, to talk to his non-girlfriend and get in her room is spotted by Fräulein Montag. So there's even more, like, I'm always being watched, there's never any privacy, like, there's a low level of, like, humiliation. Like, yeah. This, well, this is a funny chapter, isn't it? Because it's got nothing to do with the trial. This is like a well, sort of the B-plot in a sitcom. Yeah, well, I mean, I was thinking about that because they set up Fräulein Burstner really early on as the, she's going to be, like, this huge figure, this sort of, like, absentee girlfriend that he has this crazy chemistry with at the beginning of the novel. But from this point on, we never see her again. She has one scene, and it's like, okay, where did she even come from? Where does she go? dee da dee da cotton eye <laughs> is that is that pre? No. Oh, right. So as I'm saying it, I'm like, oh no. Yeah, I, I was gonna do that. <laughs> Back at the bank, Joseph K is going about his normal business when he hears a weird noise coming from the back room. He goes to investigate and opens it and discovers the two goons who initially arrested him getting whipped by a full-on leather daddy. Love that guy. I first read this book in high school, and they needed a carjack to get my jaw up off the floor. <laughs> Man, the governmental leather daddy. That's a job that's really taken a hit in the economy, hasn't it? Yeah. So the, the men getting whipped say, Oh, Joseph K., we're being punished because you complained about us. How could you? So instead of asking these men... Why are you getting Anastasia steeled in my supply closet? Are we even zoned for this? <laughs> Joseph K is actually pretty blasé about it. And he's like, well, you guys were doing some shady stuff when you arrested me. So maybe you deserve it. The Whipper, as he's called in the book. Are there any snappers? Daniel. High five. Ow, you did it hard. Sorry. <laughs> I bruise like a summer fruit. Oh, Sorry. Why did we high-five? We don't do that. That's a rubbish joke as well. The Whipper says, quote, The punishment is as just as it is inevitable. The two goons object. 
No one would have ever found out about them breaking the rules. They were on the cusp of a promotion to being whippers themselves. No. Really, Daniel? Pity here? You're lying, says the whipper. You guys just don't have what it takes to be a daddy this leather. (laughs) Joseph K., he feels guilty, right? And he tries to reason with the whipper. You know, listen, okay, the men maybe did do some crap stuff, but they're not to blame. It's a corrupt system I was complaining about, and can't you just let them go? Nah, mate, says the whipper. What my job's worth. I can't do it like you do it. <laughs> what my job's worth, mate. <laughs> I just wish the camera would pan to the whipper, though, like he's one of those appliance birds on the Flintstones who go, it's a living. You think you've got a bad job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of the whipped men then lets loose a horrible shriek, and it's just too much for Joseph K. He flees the room, and he runs right into one of his junior bank clerks. And the clerk's like, what the hell was that noise? And Joseph K. is like, dog. Dog, dog in the courtyard. Carry on. <laughs> the next day, he's like, I've got to go back to the supply closet and just like... I need some staples. Yeah, I need to make some photocopies. Whatever. To his dismay, all three men are still there exactly where he left them. Daniel, clearly rats have gnawed through the wires of reality. Nothing in this book makes sense. I was going to say, it's a bit like a computer game, isn't it? They're like NPCs. and <laughs> sort of, they, have, they don't really have a life of their own. You just walk into the... And they're always there in the tavern or whatever, you know, like... And you have, yeah, the, just the, these, the like, conversation trees. Yeah. yeah. Also, one of the guys getting whipped is all flabby. That's quite a funny bit. Is, does that make the whipping better or worse? Probably, like, I feel like it would... Listeners, maybe you should write in. Well, that's, I feel like that would sting more somehow, but oh, also I, it protects I seriously thought you meant better for the whipper. Oh. <laughs> I, think, I think worse, because there's more to be whipped. But then also it protects your bones and organs. Lord knows we need them. <laughs> if, hey, if we have any listeners in the BDSM community... And this is something you have experience of. Fat and thin. Let us know. Is it better to, better as the whippy and whipper? Is it Mr. Whippy? That's what he should be called. He should be called <laughs> the whipper. Should be called Mr. Whippy. You don't want a ninety-nine flake in that. Yeah. <laughs> Body. Come on! If you're gonna softball him into me, soft serve him in. That's what, come on. One day, <laughs> Joseph K's Uncle Carl comes to visit. I love meddling Uncle Carl. Especially... Oh, he's like a squire, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's like a minor aristocrat from the country. It also sounded like you said Uncle Kyle, which could not be a funnier name yeah. for a Kafka character. What's this I hear, Joseph? His uncle asks him. Is it true there's a case against you? So, you know, I'm horrified by the whole thing in conclusion. You know, you're bringing a bad name to the family. Like, don't worry, nephew, I'm here to help. Firstly, you're going to see my lawyer. The advocate hold. Well, Joseph K. has some kind of sniffy opinions on the way to see this lawyer. Because he's like, listen, my uncle may be a bit of an aristo, you know, a bit of a posho, but he is also a bit poor, you know, that sort of shabby genteel thing. I think thing. like a gentry guy, isn't he? Like yeah. A and he, Joseph K. is like, mm, there's something so tacky about going to a poor man's lawyer. No. He's really kind of a snot, isn't he? Yeah, there's yeah, he's a, a right really, freak. like, there's a real cruel streak in this book and i was trying to think like is it just i'm gonna pull you is it because seneca says that all cruelty springs from weakness Ooh. do you do you think that that's what he's going for that because k is in a position of weakness he starts lashing out yeah k is very arrogant um excuse me I, I, surely there must be something going on here i'm actually a manager of a very important <laughs> bank and, you know he's like that isn't he what's the 1920s prog version of a karen Exactly. K is a Karen. It's a K. Just, yeah, the Aaron must have come later. 
middle class mind this is. Oh, very suburban. Oh, Daniel's going to kick off the class warfare in this episode, I just think. Just please. Can I just say that I'm going to be first up against the fucking wall when you kick off the revolution? Well, we'll see, won't we? We'll see the, well, after the revolution what happens. So, they all arrive at Holds, and it's a bit weird and creepy. There's this kind of grill in the door with these eyes behind it. This, this person behind the door was Holds' nurse, Lenny. L-E-N-I. A woman, Lenny. Not like Lenny from Moe's Tavern or whatever. No. Or uh, the one that gets shot at the end of, of my of Men. Here at Hold is ill. He's, he's bedridden. The advocate holds... Here's them talking in the next room, and he feebly calls for Carl to come in, and they find him, this old man, long beard, another one, bedridden, and he's sort of in this weird sort of penumbra, isn't he? There's a few candles around, but mostly this room is fully dark, a bit creepy. Um, it, yeah, I've, I don't know about you, but like I really hated this scene. This is when just like everything is so grubby and shabby and, and joyless. I was trying to articulate this. You know how, like, in a cartoon, when somebody eats a fish and they just, like, pull the fish skeleton Uh, straight out of their mouths? That's what I feel like. Like, my bones have been picked clean by this book. Oh, wow. And this scene, I think, is the thing that did it. (laughs) I thought this was a bit funny, actually. I keep saying things are funny, but... This um, was the tipping point for me. This scene is gothic without any of the camp. That's true, yeah. Which is probably why you like it and why I hate (laughs) it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway... Uncle Carl, he's an old pal of Hold, and he's like, it's just one of your heart attacks and it'll pass like all the others, which I thought was funny. <laughs> Walk it off. Yeah, exactly. What is that? So the lawyer, Herr Hold, he's heard of Joseph K's upcoming trial, even though he's like apparently bedridden with a heart attack or something. In fact, he's been talking with the chief clerk of the court right now about it <laughs> the guy's in his bedroom hey he's right over there and sure enough this like man emerges from the shadows this is the scary bit isn't it that's weird that's a proper dream bit yeah it is and so the the chief clerk he's very courtly and he speaks sort of delightfully to uncle carl and to the lawyer but he completely ignores joseph k the older men all get on famously, and Joseph K starts to get annoyed that he's like the wallflower when he's clearly... He's not an NPC. He's I'm the, the star. I'm the star of this, yeah. It's the cases that got small. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, a crash of crockery outside the room. Oh, thank God, an excuse to get out of here. Don't stir, lads. I'll go see what's up. So Joseph K runs out, and it turns out that the lawyer's nurse, who saw Joseph K briefly when he walked in has fallen madly in love with him at first sight and broke a plate so he would come investigate and wants to f*** him right there on the lawyer's death. (laughs) There's a Freudian slip. Right there on the lawyer's desk. She is a freak. Even more so when, during a bit of foreplay, she's like, hey, look at this, and she holds up her hand to show Joseph K some webs between her fingers. How does he react? Well, he does what anyone would naturally do. He starts kissing her webs, and she gets real turned on by that and screams that he belongs to her now, and then she bites his hair. Nice. Bites his hair. Daniel, do you think that that is a sentence I have ever had to write before? This is like a bad acid trip. Everyone in the 20s wore, um, or 10s, wore loads of hair product as well. So you're going to get... You're going to get a proper mouthful. (laughs) Then there's like more neck kissing, of course, and we get a fade to black. And at the rate these two are going, they probably get to like fifth base. So involving the webs. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, F- Philip stuff. <laughs> like Spider-Man. When Joseph K comes back to the the meeting, his uncle is furious. Hey, I know what you've been up to in the study with Lenny, and you couldn't have picked a worse time. That chief clerk we were talking to, he agreed to help you, but you rudely left and made us wait so long for you to come back that we had to make small talk. Small talk, Joseph. No, no, it's too late now. Mm. The chief clerk got bored and left. And as for your dirty little minx, she's also Advocate Hold's mistress. Yeah, that's right. She's boinking the the heart attack guy. Maybe that's how he got it. I don't know. But you're not making yourself any friends here today, (laughs) boyo. And that's a quote. So, time has passed. It's winter now, a snowy morning. Kay is at the office trying to work, but you can think of nothing but the ongoing case. And this sort of free and direct mithering goes on for about 15 pages doesn't it it's, it's a good it's, bit it's because he's heard nothing since and it's this complete lack of communication that's starting to drive him mad yeah the crux is that hold it is useless the advocate he spends most of their time together telling Kay about how the law and court bureaucracy are unapproachable and obstructive and the advocates don't really have any official recognition from the court anyway they're just quote tolerated which is quite funny <laughs> this is what hold advises quote One must lie low, no matter how much it went against the grain, must try to understand that this great organization remains, so to speak, in a state of delicate balance, and that if someone took it upon himself to alter the disposition of things around him, he ran the risk of losing his footing and falling to destruction, while the organization would simply right itself by some compensating reaction in another part of its machinery. You can't win these things, can you? Just, yeah, nothing you can do. Can't fight City Hall. Just lie, yeah. (laughs) So he decides... You know, this is his resolution. I'm going to put the skill and ambition that I've displayed throughout my career in the bank into my case. You know, I'm going to really intervene in this. He's going to girl boss it. I'm going to girl boss it. Exactly. That's (laughs) K's ethos. Ethos. And that's the end of the book. He just sorts it out. Um, No. In the meantime, he's going to sack hold and defend himself. Oh, no. Oh, he's getting Trumpy. Yeah. Yeah. How many lawyers are you going to burn through there, buddy? Just one, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, but for me, bon- for me, more, that'd be one too many. Kay is interrupted from this daydream when he's visited by a client. So Kay has kept this guy waiting for a while because he's so busy dwelling on the trial and his boss and more importantly his rivals are starting to notice that in general he's getting lax of his work at the bank. He has some, is it the assistant director or something, some rival that's always trying to like... That was my favourite part of the book. The kind of office politics stuff. Yeah, just the little like... I f- hate that guy yeah. just the little the low level there's all these bits where he's like I'll show him but now it's not the time I've got to do, go over this trail but after the trail that guy <laughs> I was really thinking like that's the one thing if I could heighten one thing and that it would be more the office politics that you could you could do a little bit of a microcosm there as well and it's also just like the futility and the pettiness of it all that I thought would <laughs> exactly yeah. yes the manufacturer reveals that he knows Kay is involved in a case because he has a contact at the court the official portrait painter Titorelli. Oh, good. More accents for you. Yeah. The manufacturer says, why don't you visit Titorelli? <laughs> Jesus uh, Christ. And he might be able to like be a bit of a bureaucratic backdoor, you know? He might be able to help you bypass the official channels. So Joseph K is like, great, I finally found my, my angle, somebody to help me. So he goes to a particularly shitty neighborhood, even worse than the one he first went to for his, his first trial thing. And he asks a local 13-year-old girl, hey, do you know where the painter Torelli lives? With a slight spinal deformity. Oh yeah, God forbid we skip over that detail. 
to paint your portrait, she asks, and then she slaps him across the face and runs away. Nice. Daniel, would you consider slapping me across the face just so I could feel something again? Why is the book um, done that, or is that just general? Nobody's ever asked me that before. (laughs) (laughs) So he finally reaches Titarelli's apartment, and he discovers that that girl is there, and she's gathered a bunch of other teenage girls, and they're going to make Joseph K. like run the gauntlet by them up to the flat while they smack him or whatever. It's like the Beatles. Like, <laughs> like Hard Day's Night. When he finally gets up to the flat and he meets Titarelli, Titarelli's like, yeah, I don't know what's up with those brats. They're obsessed with me. And they have, like, a spare key to the flat and they just burst in all the time and, like, taunt me. <laughs> I don't really get what's going on. But hey, buddy, good news for you. I do indeed have, quote, the confidence of the court. The confidence of the court? <laughs> And I can provide you with this sort of backdoor view to the legal system. I thought there'd be a song or something. (laughs) Could you imagine in the 11th f***ing hour this turns into some, like, glossy MGM musical? That's the kicker. That would make it (laughs) a little bit worse. Well, that's great, Joseph K. says. I'm innocent and I want to be acquitted. How do I make that happen? Okay, says Titarelli. Here's the deal. There are three types of acquittal you can have, and they depend on what you want to do. The first one is definite acquittal, where you're just found not guilty, the whole thing is over, the end. Never once in my whole experience have I ever heard of anyone getting a definite acquittal. They only exist as like legends, like the fucking chupacabra. So put it out of your mind, it's not gonna happen. The court is impervious to proof, he says. (laughs) That's a great line. Impervious to proof. Kind of like my bread. I'm sticking a bread. What's a bread joke here? (laughs) Bit of bread banter. Jewish. What are those flatbreads? Oh, is there something? Oh my god, we've just cracked this wide open. It's unleavened bread. This is a Jewish commentary. Holy shit. Emphasis on the holy. (laughs) So, your second option is ostensible acquittal. And this means you have to do a ton of work early on, you have to petition the court, but a judge can determine you're probably innocent and then everything will be really chill. The problem with this option is that it's basically just like hitting the pause button. They can revoke it at any stage. If a judge like dies or retires and your case ends up on another judge's desk, they could start everything over at square one. So the threat is always gonna hang over you. The final option is indefinite postponement. You'll never be acquitted, but your case will also never progress. You just have to make sure it gets stuck in red tape forever, but then you can basically go about your life without worrying about being arrested again. But this is constant work on your part to like keep it always stuck in red tape. Doesn't matter which one you choose, really, though, because there are just no guarantees. Not in this fucking life. So, the options aren't good. During all of this, those teenage girls keep peeking in the painter's window and commenting on every move he makes, like some sort of perverted Greek chorus. Mm. So, Joseph K. gets really stressed out by all of this, and he begs the painter, just like, can you let me leave? I'll make a decision later about what path I want to pursue. This is all just, like, overwhelming. Not before he forces Kay into buying some of his Heathscapes. Well, that's what I was going to say. You you have to buy three of my identical paintings. (laughs) Hey, they're all of Heaths. Bye-bye. King's Heath, Druid's Heath, and Washwood Heath. Little brummy joke there. Very heathy city, full of heathens. (laughs) Considering there's no natural landscape whatsoever. I've got news for you. Heaths are a man-made landscape anyway. They come from primitive forestry 
well, or, you know, super forestry regions burn it down. Oh, well, that's me told. Yeah. Thank you for this exercise in humility, Daniel. Yeah, that's all right. So as the painter leads Joseph K. out the back, they go through another one of those creepy attic law court offices, and Joseph is very surprised. What's one of those doing up here near an artist studio in this crappy part of town? Why, Joseph, the law courts are everywhere. They own just about every building, the painter says. And as they go through this law court, Joseph K. starts to get faint again from the stuffy atmosphere, just like he did earlier. So we've had that interlude, Titorelli, Titorelli, that's done. Kay continues with his plan, sack the advocate. He goes to Hould's house, but he's greeted by, quote, a dried up little man with a long beard. Another long beard. Like a beard. gnome? Yeah, there's a lot of long beards around, aren't there? This guy's called Herr Block. Block claims to be one of Hould's clients, but Kay catches a little glimpse of Lenny in her nightgown and thinks, hmm... Something's going on here between these two, I think. Kay confronts Lenny, but she and Block are like, oh, no, no, nothing's going on. <laughs> what? No, that's crazy. So Kay is like, okay, I'll take your word for it. And he and Block start to discuss their cases. The man, he's like, what? You've only, your case has been only going on for six months. That's an infant of a case. I have been on trial for years. Weird flex, dude, but okay. <laughs> Hold is one of six lawyers that I've hired. And I'm completely financially ruined. And I spent so long at the court, you know, I'm there all day. I'm just completely a shell of a man. So, in any case, Kay announces that he's come to dismiss Hold, which horrifies Block and Lenny. Lenny is not impressed. She races Kay to Hold's office, unsuccessfully, I might add, to try and stop him from sacking his lawyer. So, bit of a Scooby-Doo chase sequence through the halls. Joseph K. gets there first, and he locks the door behind him. So, we're in Herr Hold, the advocate's bedroom. He's still ill in bed, as per, you know, because he's apparently had multiple heart attacks. Hmm. And they make some small talk, and Herr Hold reveals that maybe Lenny is sleeping with that little creep block. Because, you know what? She has the hots for any condemned man. Joseph K. is really disgusted by that and he finally works up his nerve to fire his lawyer but hold tries to talk him out of it don't do it says hair hold you have no idea how good you actually have it with me protecting you quote it's often safer to be in chains than to be free i'd like to show you how other accused men are treated and perhaps you may learn a thing or two so then (laughs) hair hold you know again fresh from his heart attack summons into his bedroom block and lenny and harold and lenny start psychologically torturing block confusing him and humiliating him and making him crawl around on all fours why are you hitting yourself why do they do this i don't know maybe this is the only way harold can maintain an erection these days Ooh. let's just move on before this book picks my bones clean like i'm an ox in death valley Ooh, yeah can i just say you didn't read, which is probably one of my favorite bits. Here we go with the notes. You'd give me notes on closing night of a play. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> where is it? Okay, this is it. This is what Hold tells us Kay when he's trying to convince him to stay on. I once read a very finely worded description of the difference between an advocate for ordinary legal rights and an advocate for cases like these. It ran like this. The one advocate leads his client by a slender thread, but the other lifts his client on his shoulders from the start and carries him bodily without once letting him down until the verdict is reached. And even beyond it, the case is like, what? But that's that's such a kind of 
weird Kafka image. This is the Kafka the poet. So, back at work, an important colleague of the bank from Italy is in town. Ooh, more accents for you? Don't think so. <laughs> and Kay is told to show him a good time. You know what that means? Brothels? It means visit the town's art treasures and monuments. Oh, I've been watching that, man. Carry on. Yeah. Kay is not in the mood. The Italian visitor has a, quote, iron grey moustache, which is, quote, obviously perfumed, one that w- one was almost tempted to go close up and have a sniff at it. I'm starting to feel unclean, Daniel. It is a scuzzy book, isn't it? Something Recent unclean book. is yeah. happening to us right now. Kay arranges to meet the Italian the next day at the cathedral, but he never turns up. So it starts raining heavily outside, so Kay goes into the cathedral and stays put. The cathedral's all dark and cavernous, and it appears to be deserted. Although no one's around except Kay, he sees a priest ascending into the pulpit, so he, he's like, better get out before a police service starts. Don't want to be sitting here, stuck in here out of politeness. But no, the priest, in a resonant, well-trained voice, cries, Joseph Kay! What? Cliffhanger. <laughs> Not really, because I'm about to pick this straight up. Thank you. So it turns out this priest is actually the prison chaplain, which I'm like, if we're doing like disguises and cloak and dagger, this is a very disappointing Jean Parmesan disguise. And he's here to tell Joseph K, buddy, your trial is going badly. So Joseph K talks to the, the prison chaplain for a bit. And after a while, K says he starts to feel like, you know, I can really open up to you. I feel like I can trust you. The chaplain's like, well, you're an idiot then. (laughs) And he advises him not to trust anyone associated with the court. Then they, and I gotta be honest, I really tapped out of this bit. They talk about this sort of like parable. Oh, right. This is the best bit. I'm so annoyed when I saw that this is under your rubric. I was like, this is one of the best bits. Oh, really? You can have it if you want. Yeah. This is the parable. Let me read it. It's gonna take a thousand years. So... In short, I've abbreviated it. Thank you. A man stands before the door to the law, which is guarded by a doorkeeper. It's nothing about one lion and one telling the truth. There's one door and one doorkeeper. So the doorkeeper says, it's not time for you to enter the door yet. And you shouldn't try because I, not only am I strong, I'm the weakest of all the doorkeepers to follow. So, you know, you better just wait. The man does what he's told. He waits and sort of doesn't get into this door for many years. Eventually, he's about to die, and he says to the doorkeeper, Why, if everyone strives to attain the law, no one else has tried to get through this door? The doorkeeper tells him that the door was for the man alone, and now he's going to shut it. I started to lose the will to live here. It's a great bit. It exhausted me so much, I just wanted to lay down on the ground and pull dirt up over myself and have a nap. It's definitely my favourite chapter, this. So, Joseph, he's like, great, thanks for the weird tale, brah. I gotta head back to work, probably. And that's the end of that chapter. A year has passed. It's always winter and never Hanukkah. Yeah. It's nine o'clock on the evening of Kay's 31st birthday, and two rather fat, pale men in frock coats and top hats, quote, that were apparently uncollapsible, (laughs) come to Kay's lodging. What's that? What's the significance of that? It's sort of frivolous about a collapsible top hat, isn't it? Because it's about having fun, isn't it? You put it under your opera seat. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. Is that supposed to be that they're out of date? Or is that that they are... Is that like a lower class or upper class thing? I couldn't figure yeah, out what it or was. Or just a formal thing. Just 
Kafka's perverse, and he adds these details yeah. which upset us. I mean, that's, that's something that has clearly... There's a meaning there, like a very clear social meaning. Well, there isn't. And that Kafka's just trying to confuse us. No, I'm sure there was some implication about, like, oh, that laddie's got a collapsible top hat. You know what that means. Well, I don't think so. I think it's weirder than that. No, I bet there's... Question it, everything. If anyone knows what a collapsible top hat means in this sort of period... Because it's unyielding. You could just talk about it in that sense. Yeah, no. Like, like it's the metaphor for the law. Anyway, somebody write an essay on it. Kay seems to have been waiting for them, and he's dressed in black himself. Although disgruntled, Kay offers himself to the men, and they sort of frog march him kind of down the stairs and waddle down the street with him. Eventually, they leave the town that they're in, and they reach a small quarry where they strip Kay of his jacket and his shirt and sit him next to a boulder. Mm, finally something for the ladies <laughs> in this. Yeah. A real pale Clark's mm, body. Mm. Like a radish. That's what Walt <laughs> like said. Like a radish. Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> so the two men, they're here to enact some sort of punishment on Joseph K, and they give a very courtly, formal, polite exchange with each other back and forth about who has the honor of doing what. They lay Joseph on the ground, and then one of them takes out a double-edged butcher knife, and then there's more weird, polite ceremony, passing the knife back and forth, and Joseph K, he kind of he kind of twigs, like oh, you guys want me to snatch the knife from you and stab myself in the heart. I don't get how he got <sighs> there, but sure. But he doesn't like it. No, f*** that whole noise. And he just gets really upset because this whole situation has been so unfair. Quote, where was the judge whom he had never seen? Where was the high court to which he had never penetrated? He looks off to the side and sees someone in the window of a distant house, watching. The person leans out the window and stretches out their arms. What does it mean, Joseph thinks. He raises his hand and spreads out his fingers in acknowledgement. Couldn't do that if you're Lenny with your webbed fingers. Mm -hmm. As he does so... One of the men stabs Joseph K. in the heart, making sure to turn the knife around twice. Joseph K.'s final words are, Like a dog. Sorry, but at least old Yeller's killers felt sorry for him. This is way worse than mm. a dog. As he dies, Joseph feels that, quote, It was as if he meant the shame of it to outlive him. The end. Hooray. Uh. Good stuff. Um. Happy ending. At least he learned his lesson. Did he? Yeah. I didn't. Okay. Would you like some casting? I bloody would. I have a choice for you today. Whoa. Choose your own adventure. A little bit. I want you to tell me which of these you think would do a better job. Because there are two directors, kind of similar, and I had to actually look up that neither of them had ever adapted this because it is so in their wheelhouse. One of the Wachowskis or the other one? Cute. That's Thank very you. cute. Yeah. Fritz Lang or F.W. Murnau? See, I think Lang would be perfect for the German expressionism in early film noir. It's like M, isn't it? It's yeah, exactly. But 
I think Murnau might be the more inspired choice because he was first and foremost a theatrical director who then used theater solutions for film. So I really like that tension between old entertainment and new technology. And I think that would underscore Joseph Kay's like increasing alienation and new views of the mm. world. So it would get increasingly more cinematic as it goes on. Yeah, that's kind of cool. And I, I had a really interesting casting choice for Joseph Kay. Bit of a controversial one, but you need somebody aristocratic, a little bit of snotty, a little bit of a hunk. Leslie Howard, who is better known as Ashley from Gone with the Wind. Uh, yeah. He's a, he's a bit pathetic. He's a bit Who aristocratic. Are you going to say Nielsen? <laughs> 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 yeah. That would be a controversial choice. Yeah, yeah I quite like that, yeah. But like he's like both virile and a bit yeah, skim milky. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, because I always thought that was weird in the in that. Gone with the world, why she fancied him so much. Yeah, like he's handsome, but not. So, which do you choose then? Who do you think would be better? You seem to prefer the Murnau one. I think that's more interesting. I think Lang would be the better um, mainstream appeal. But I was thinking when I was reading this, there was a bit like Fritz Lang. So I oh, there we go. <laughs> I mean, you can't... With either did, of these guys, you're not going to lose. Who did Dr. Caligari? No, it, wasn't I, it wasn't either of them. With Fritz Lang, you've got M, so you've got all the paranoia and the mm. police procedural and the grubby streets. Mm-hmm. You've got Metropolis, so you can talk about Industry the, the fantasy and, the, yeah, and yeah. stuff and the, the kind of crazy sets. And the but weird class got, stuff as well, yeah. yeah. And then there's also um, those Dr. Mabusa films, mm-hmm. which are later ones of which are allegories for Nazism, aren't they? So, in all of those respects... I would love to see both of their productions and not even pit them against each other, but just, like, see what they both have to offer. And now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. A man finds out that someone sues him, and throughout the entire book, he tries to finish his case and fails and kills himself in the end. So pathetic. One star. (laughs) Ma'am, that is not what happened. Nobody sues him, as far as we're aware, and he does not kill himself at the end. Did you read the book? It's criminal, not civil. (laughs) Yeah. Reads like a Family Guy parody of German Gilmore Girls, one star. Daniel, can you translate that for me? Because I truly don't know what they're on about. I read this when there was too much going on with building works and a poorly cat. I have no idea what this is about. Yeah. One star. All right, that's it. You ready for some analysis? Sure am. Hot dig it. No. No. You're fanning yourself like you're in a Baptist church, though. It's very warm in my office. This is. Form. Anything about it? Well, the book has one. And one of the key elements of that is allegory and parable. Mm -hmm. Lots of, like stories, allegorical stories flip their way through this. And there's a sense that the whole thing might be allegorical. Yeah. But there's all these other like... Other artworks in this, because there's like tons of paintings in this. You feel like there's like it's there's commentary happening or interpretation that the characters are trying to undertake of other artworks and it's... They can't really get anywhere with it. Like the law is inscrutable, the paintings are inscrutable, because it's like those three identical Titarelli paintings, and you're like, is that the same one or are they different? The point here is that the kind of the world is overloaded with symbols. Mm-hmm. Like the law underlies everything. This idea of a kind of symbolic register mm-hmm. that by which the world is to be understood, but those symbols themselves are, like you say, inscrutable. And I, I feel like that's part of Kafka's aesthetic that it's it just goes deeper and deeper without any yeah. bottom. 
Yeah, it's it's labyrinthine, but there's no way out. Yeah. There's only ways in. But what about this being unfinished? I mean, you said early on, like, it feels like he never could have finished this. Like, at some point, somebody had to take it away from him, and that somebody was death. Yes, yeah, it does feel like that. Well, well he gave up on it quite early, I think, but yeah. It's it not very long, though, no. but I know what you mean, that this feels like it could spiral out forever. I, I wrote something here, and I don't know if this is anything, but in terms of the... You know, it's unfinished, it's futile, it kind of, like, it doesn't make sense. The par Like, nothing is answered and nothing is really resolved except through death. And I was thinking, there, there's something quite punk rock about the existentialism of the book. Because I wondered if, from Kafka's perspective, it's his power play on the reader. It's very, like, all roads lead to death, and I, Kafka, have just taken X number of hours of your life away from you. Yeah. And by extension... Daniel and I, listener, have taken away an hour of your life. Whoa. Face your destiny. Six hours of our own, though. <laughs> Maybe, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but domination mm -hmm. runs through the text, doesn't it? And yep. not just from the law, but every social relationship in it, and especially every sexual relationship, is framed as one of domination and like ownership mm -hmm. or possession of some kind. As you say, it's like a power play. Yeah. It's, all, it's a world of power plays, and it's quite nasty in that respect. You made a point here about genre. Is this a who done it or the term you coined is a he done what? So like is this it's kind of a mystery mm. but also kind of not cuz it's never set up like that. Yeah. It's it's like an anti-detective story where he's kind he's not even trying to figure out what he did or we don't see anyone investigating him and his apparent crimes or whatever. Yeah. It's it's, it's all more about procedure. It's it's yeah, it's a, the weirdest like not even police procedural. Legal. Pro That's the other thing. It's not a courtroom novel. You talked about this being really irritating to read, and you wrote, kind of like having a headache or being cross-eyed. An aesthetic triumph. Ugh, how pompous. No, I... But it's true, though. <laughs> but it is. But that's exactly what it's like. It, you, do, you do feel like you're going mad. And the other point you had here was dreams and nightmares. This, you know, this is very close to feeling what it's like to yeah. be in a dream. The dream and, logic. And... I think that's kind of miraculous. I was reading yeah. that going, the reason why I think a lot of people hate this so much is because you f it makes you feel how you feel when you're in a dream, hmm. in like a very frustrating dream. That and in a way that's almost, it's a little bit upsetting, isn't it, to realize that somebody could so miraculously distill that logic because it seems mm. so intangible. What could have been wrong with this guy to be able to do that? But also yeah. it feels a bit like a part of you is being exposed by reading it. Yes, yeah. And, and again, that power play thing, He's a remarkable writer because he can do this to you. Yeah. He can make you feel this. And it's not pleasant. I did not enjoy reading this, but it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. No. Let's, let's maybe bring it back down to more concrete examples here. What about that Joseph K. doesn't have a proper last name? It's, he's just, and even his first name, he's mostly just called K., in mm. the novel. That's an obvious like Kafka parallel of like author insertion. I am Kafka, I am mm. K. But why is he denied a last name when everyone else seems to have them? And often doesn't have a first name. Yeah, or some people have just first names like Lenny. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's very fractured identity. Everyone's yeah. kind of anonymized. He's, but it's like having your cake and eat it too because he's the first person, the only person who has the most identity. He, he has a first name and a last initial but then he's often just reduced down just to that tiny initial, so it's like he both has more and less than everyone else. Yeah. The idea that K is a Kafka proxy is kind of confusing as well, because like, as we've already discussed, he's quite unlikable, and he seems a lot more bullshit than we might imagine mm. Kafka to be. 
Also, I was thinking that like there are some implications that he, well, is not a Jew. Mm-hmm. I was thinking for starters, he's got that squire uncle. Mm-hmm. I feel like you wouldn't have a noble in your family. In I mean, I could be wrong. Also, there's just a lot of Christian stuff in it in general, like the cathedral and the parables mm-hmm. and everything. And I was just, I was wondering, is Kay a Gentile? It's more just that Jewishness is conspicuously absent, maybe we could put yes, it. Yes, I like that. C- cathedrals and people often talk about it Kafka was a great Jewish writer, but uh, yeah, there's a kind of, I don't know, Gentile thing going on. I wanted to talk a little bit about work in this, because at that early bit, there's that expectation that he's going to keep working despite having this life-altering crisis, and he's grateful for it. <laughs> yeah. And, but... and even I was like, oh good, he can, you know, he can keep going, and then I'm like, wait, what? Hmm. That he has to, you know, constantly... Go to a trial on Sunday. Oh, that was the other thing, yeah. Sunday, yeah, the... Yeah. Sabbath. The, yeah. The, the Christian Sabbath. Yeah. You know, he talks about all of his effort at the bank and things like that. And, you know, he's always being looked on by his co-workers. And they're like, oh, are you shirking? Is your work slipping? Right? So, obviously, it's good for him to have constant effort and labor. But at the same time, in the greater structure of the law, you have to just, you know, just give up. Don't fight. Don't struggle. Don't try anything. And that's a weird tension to me. Mm, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't really think about that, but you're right. That there's the usual kind of authoritarian reading of the text, mm-hmm. but this is more of a kind of anti-capitalist reading, couldn't mm. you? Just doff your cap, get back to work. Well, I was thinking that there's a rough divide between male and female spaces, mm-hmm. I was thinking, and the court and all of its kind of bureaucracy are largely masculine. And then there's all these kind of women that fringe it in these sort of female spaces, like Lenny in the corridor outside Holman's mm-hmm. office, and the washerwoman... And Bursner has that funny overlap with the inspector, but you never see yeah. them together. And then there's also the whole James Bond thing about Kay getting with every woman in question. And there's this quote, isn't there? I seem to recruit women helpers, he says to himself. <laughs> I mean, you could read it in that incel way that Kay is a kind of fantasy of male power mm-hmm. and therefore feels resentful that he's being imposed upon in this way. But equally, I was wondering if it's more that he is also quite a female figure and he because he's always in these fringe spaces and can never access the male spaces that are the court and that he that he thinks these women are his helpers but in fact he's just kind of one of them or yeah an object of them or indeed one of them part of this kind of peripheral structure that can never access the core of power and so it's a kind of emasculation narrative which is i suppose if you say that that's not all that surprising but it has a spatial component to it Right, so are you ready for some advice? Yes, please. So I think one of the hardest things to do as a student or scholar or even just reading for fun is divorce what you don't like personally from what is a bad book. I personally really hated reading this, but you're supposed to hate it. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. This was not a fun experience for me. But... I can acknowledge that it is very skillfully written. So I'm going to lay a challenge to our listeners. I'd like you to write in with a book that you appreciate as a good, skillful book, but just isn't to your taste. So it's a little exercise for you guys, rather than just, I didn't like it, therefore it's bad, which I got all over the bad Goodreads. You know what? What? I didn't like that advice, but I recognized it as objectively good advice. That's very cute. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited to do that (laughs) so now for our clue to the next episode friend we are entering our Halloween season where we do episodes on scary texts and there is no scarier setting on earth than the f***ing suburbs or Disneyland ooh hmm so 
write into our email at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Yeah, I said tweet. I'm not asking you to X us or whatever the goddamn f***ing hell. Finally making a stand. Yeah, please subscribe to our Patreon. Please follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And from Daniel and myself, thanks for tuning in. Fairly well. Sorry for the break last time. I'm not sorry. <laughs> You're glad to get rid of me for two <laughs> weeks. <laughs> thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart. And cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you. <laughs>